Our New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Beginning with verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. God is quite clear in his word, dear ones, about the need for his people to be a separate people. To be separated from all idolatry, to be separated from all covenants that would in any way compromise their covenant with the living God. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18 make this exceedingly clear. For the Lord through the Apostle Paul says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. To enter into covenants with idolaters, to to place their compromising pluralism into a covenant relationship so that our covenant with the living God, and so that the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, is compromised, is indeed something which the Lord God calls us to be separate from, to take no fellowship in. We read, and we won't turn there, but we read of such covenants which God's people entered into. For example, King Asa 
with King Ben-Hadad in Second Chronicles 16. And God brought his prophet to Asa to tell him that what he had done was in fact sinful. He was to be separated, not to enter into a covenant with an idolater of this nature. For in so doing, he was compromising the very first commandment of God. The same thing is said with regard to Jehoshaphat. As he entered into a covenant with Ahab, God again brought judgment upon him for his covenant breaking at that point. Failing to keep and to honor that very first covenant, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Any entangling covenant, dear ones, that compromises our wholehearted devotion in any kind of pluralistic way so that there are compromising standards is an unlawful covenant in which we enter and we must separate. You see, God does not want us to learn the ways of the heathens. But he does want us, nevertheless, to take opportunities in our various contacts and associations through work, through our neighborhood, through family that we have with unbelievers to seek to bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have talked about separation a number of times recently in sermons. And I'm not denying or qualifying what we have said thus far, but I do want you to realize, and this will be the thrust of the sermon today, that if we are to bring the nations by God's grace unto Himself, it will happen through the proclamation of the Gospel. It will happen as we fill this church with those who need to hear the Gospel. As you go out each Lord's Day into your various spheres of influence and you are using all of those not to compromise the first commandment, but to uphold the first commandment. You see, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself did in His ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 9, the Apostle Paul has just given instruction as to what the church of Corinth should do with regard to this man who was a member of the congregation and yet was living in fornication. What they should do, they should put him out of the church, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order that, this is the goal, in order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That was the goal. To redeem the man, not to, not to see the man forever under the, the, the judgment of God. But in verse 9, interesting, this is what the Apostle says. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. 
yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. You see, the Lord makes a distinction between those who profess to be Christians and who are living completely contrary to his law and those who make no profession at all, who need the gospel, who need to see a Christian life live before them. And so we find that from these we are to separate as far as the idolatry, the covetousness and all the sins that they do. But if we rub shoulders with them, if we work side by side with them, if we have family members who are in this position, that we can take opportunity and we must take opportunity to present the claims of Christ unto them. And so we're not talking about separation in the sense that we separate from the whole world and have no contact whatsoever with any non-Christian. As I said, the Lord Jesus Christ himself did not follow this particular example. The Lord Jesus, dear ones, sends you out from this time of worship on the Lord's Day in order to gather in sinners like you and me. To gather in sinners who are in need of the riches of God's grace and mercy. He sends you out to do a job. He sends you out to be effective. To live in such a way that you will become salt and light to a perishing world. My text today is from the Gospel of Luke. You thought that I had already gotten to my text, no doubt. But the text is from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. And we'll be considering verses 27 through 32 this Lord's Day. Throughout the fifth chapter of Luke, you'll find the Lord gathering his flock into the fold. From this kind of situation, various kinds of sinners, bringing them into his flock. In verse 1 and following, he's preaching to a very huge crowd. In verse 10, he tells his own disciples that they are to be gathering people in like fishers of men. And I want to make a distinction, certainly, that we are not all in this sense, fishers of men. The sense in which the disciples were uniquely fishers of men and the sense in which ordained gospel officers, ministers of the gospel are fishers of men, is in a primary sense that they are specifically entrusted with the proclamation of the gospel. But that does not mean that in your various spheres of influence in the family, 
at work, that you cannot testify, that you cannot make testimony of the faithfulness of the Lord and tell people what Christ has done in your life as well as proclaim to them their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12 and following, Jesus is gathering in a leper, an outcast of society, into his fold. In verses 17 and following, the Lord, in this fifth chapter of Luke, is gathering in a helpless paralytic. And in the text before you, beginning with verse 27, he is still gathering in. He's gathering in the most vile sinners of society of that time. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, gathering them in into his kingdom. I would have you notice, dear ones, that this mission of the Lord Jesus Christ in gathering in the helpless, the hopeless sinners of society into God's kingdom preoccupied the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. That was His burden, to see them rescued. Is it a burden to you? Does it preoccupy you? In your time of prayer, your fervency in praying for those that God would give you opportunity to to present to them the gospel, that God in His glory would see fit to open the hearts of those who are separated from Him at this point. There are three actors in this drama that we find in Luke chapter 5 that I would like for you to consider this Lord's Day. And each actor will teach you something about gathering people into the kingdom of God. The very first actor that we would look at in this drama is Levi or Matthew. He is actually the author of the very first gospel. We read in verses 27 through 29 concerning Levi. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Levi was a tax collector. A profession of that day that was considered to be about as honorable as the profession of uh, prostitution or the the, uh, the, uh, sin of prostitution. It was, if you would, the IRS or the Revenue Canada. I've got to get used to speaking in terms of the the equivalent in Canada. 
Uh, Revenue Canada uh, was the equivalent of what Levi was. Now, I know most of you don't stay awake at night having all kinds of happy, uh, memorable thoughts about Revenue Canada. Relishing in all of the things that Revenue Canada has done for you. Well, you can imagine that the same was certainly true of Levi. He was not your most popular man in this time. He was not a candidate for uh, the best citizen of that particular town. In fact, tax collectors in Jesus' day were hated by the Jewish people because, first of all, they were traitors. They worked for the hated Romans who occupied Palestine. Second of all, they were hated because they were profaners. Their job brought them into continual contact with Gentiles and heathens, with sinners. And thirdly, they were hated because they were thieves. They were legalized thieves who would give to Rome what Rome required, but would ridiculously raise the taxes so as to pocket whatever was left over after having paid Rome. Tax collectors, dear ones, were despised and hated by the Jews. And in the Gospels, Tax collectors seems to continuously appear along with the other word, and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. They were, as it were, the chief way in which a man could sin. They were outsiders to the faith. They were the scum of the earth in the eyes of the people of Israel at that time. They were, in fact, worse than any pagan and heathen because many of them were Jews who had, in the judgment of the Jews at that time, betrayed the faith. But Jesus said in Luke 5.27, Jesus said to this undeserving tax collector, follow me. Leave your table... Leave your tax collecting, Levi, and follow me. Be my disciple. The call went out to one like Levi, considered to be one of the most heinous sinners in society. The one whom the Jews would think would be the very last one to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Now, at that particular point, whether Levi on other occasions had heard the Lord Jesus preach, or whether he had heard of the Lord Jesus prior to Christ's command to follow him, we're not given details concerning this. But Levi, the Word of God says, left his tables and followed the Lord Jesus Christ. He left everything, according to verse 28. He left all, rose up, and followed Him. 
It reminds me of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, where the Apostle Paul says that of those who had been saved, those whom God had called unto himself, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? Why has God chosen to save the base? To, to save those who are not noble? To save those who are not wise and knowledgeable? That no flesh should glory in his presence. It is all of God. It is all of God's grace. And we see that very clearly displayed when Levi is chosen by God to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusted with the ministry of Christ, and sent out to preach the gospel. A miracle of God's grace. But I'd have you also note in Levi's call, his response. There wasn't a wavering, well... Uh, a compromise, as it were. Should I follow the Lord or shouldn't I? He, in his faith, was genuine. He determined that he would follow the Lord. This was not a case of easy believism. So often today we hear of those who proclaim, well, you can accept Jesus Christ as Savior. You don't have to worry about accepting him as Lord or receiving him as Lord over your life, just receive him as the Savior from your sins. But dear ones, we cannot divide the, the person of Christ and his offices into two different categories. He is a prophet, a priest, and a king. You cannot take which one you want with regard to Christ. You receive Christ in his entirety. And Matthew, or Levi, did so. <clears throat> Never forget, dear ones, that there is room in the kingdom of God for Levi's. Many of us in our backgrounds perhaps would be considered Levi's in today's society because of the sins that we had committed God had mercy upon us. God restored us. God has brought us into His kingdom and He will not let us go. Praise be to His marvelous grace. But you see, one more thing concerning Levi, dear ones. Levi threw a party, as it were, a banquet for the Lord Jesus Christ in his own home and invited not the most respectable people in the city to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, but probably, again, the most disrespected people in his town 
He invited all of his fellow associates and sinners, the lowlifes, the crooks, to see the Lord Jesus, to hear Christ proclaim his amazing truth and words unto them. Why? Why did Levi do so? Because he wanted to continue. Is this why? Because he wanted to continue his wicked life? Did he invite sinners to Christ because he wanted to emulate the lifestyle that these sinners were living? No. He wanted them to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear from Christ the same words in their soul, follow me. Because he knew that Christ had changed his life. And he wanted the same thing for the lives of these fellow associates and friends. Sinners though they may be, he desired, he was burdened to see them come into the kingdom of God. Levi, after following the Lord Jesus, did not decide, first of all, to go to Africa or go to the jungles of South America. But he went to his friends. He went to his business associates. He went to his neighbors and invited them to come to the Lord Jesus. You see, his home became a hospital for healing the sick, the lame, the deaf, the sightless in spirit. A hospital where Jesus Christ could perform His miraculous healing powers in their life. You see, Jesus could simply have healed spiritually all of these particular people without Matthew or Levi. But He chooses to use you and me as instruments and means of bringing people to Himself. Let us never forget it. It's just like the demoniac whom the Lord Jesus healed in Luke chapter 8, verse 39. He wanted to follow Jesus also. He wanted to follow Jesus literally, to be a part of Jesus' team, as it were, to follow Him wherever He went. But Jesus, in this case, told the demoniac, the ex-demoniac, he had been healed, delivered by God's grace, go back to your family and tell them of the wondrous things that God has done in your life. Let them see the change. Let them hear the reason for the change. And so the Lord, dear ones, calls us as His people, like Levi, to have a burden for the lost, to seek and to desire to see those whom you know who do not know Christ, those who are outside of the covenant, those who perhaps are outside of our fellowship, our church here, to invite them in, to desire to see them grow if they're already Christians in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. 
You see, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 had a burden for the lost as he looked over the multitudes. He had compassion for them, for they were like a flock without a shepherd. He had compassion. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, and it's, it's, it's very difficult no doubt for us to understand the kind of burden that Paul had for his fellow countrymen. But he says this, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Is that your desire? Is that your earnest desire, dear ones? For family members and friends and contacts, associates that you have. Are you diligently in family prayer upholding these in prayer? Praying that God would show them mercy. In your own personal prayer, do you have a burden for them? Jesus can give that burden. The Lord God can give that burden, but you must begin seeking and asking, God, give me a burden for the lost that I might pray and uphold them in prayer. And give me opportunities, Lord, with them. We ought to be like Levi, where our homes, dear ones, become hospitals for the healing of those who are spiritually sick, who are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we like Levi? And his burden for the lost, or are we like, secondly, the Pharisees? In chapter 5, verse 30, we read this, Luke 5:30, concerning the attitude of the Pharisees. <clears throat> but their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? How can you possibly contaminate yourself as sitting down around the table with men and women like this? How can you eat and drink with them? In a previous pastorate, I visited a little girl who was in, in a hospital, very, very seriously ill. So ill that uh, she was placed within this tent where pure oxygen uh, was all that she could breathe. It prevented her from con contracting any germs or any diseases that might be floating around in the hospital as well as giving her pure oxygen uh, to, to breathe. <clears throat> you know, the word Pharisee 
going to tie it in with that just uh, in just a moment. The word Pharisee means separatist, to separate. It comes from the verb, the Hebrew verb that means to separate. Now, we've already said there is a good and right sense in which we should separate. But there is also a sense in which we ought not to separate. We ought not, people of God, we ought not to think that we cannot have any kind of contact with the the sinners of this world. That ought not to be the kind of separation that we practice. A separatist in the sense in which the Pharisees were separatists is clearly wrong. They believed the best way to be holy and righteous was to stay inside of their little bubble, their little tent, separated from all of the germs, no contact with any of the germs and the spiritual diseases that were out there, these sinners, these, these publicans, these prostitutes, no contact whatsoever. That was their attitude. Don't reach out to them. When they're ready, they'll come to us, was their attitude. Now, I'm afraid that many look at Calvinists as that is our view as well, because of our understanding of God's sovereign election. And we can actually communicate that that's our idea. But, beloved, that should not be our idea. God uses people as a means to bring in those whom he has sovereignly chosen and elected. I could say the same thing. There's no need for me to proclaim the gospel. God could raise up stones if he chose to. He could bring in a donkey and have, if he chose to, have the donkey proclaim to you as he did to Balaam his truth, his word. But he's chosen to use people, weak, frail, human beings like you and me. I pray we don't live up to that particular false idea of what a Calvinist is. We do believe in an absolutely sovereign God that apart from his sovereign work, no one can be saved. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ having died for the elect, no one will be saved. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit changing and transforming a heart, raising from, de- from, uh, from the grave one who is spiritually dead, it will not happen no matter what you say, no matter what you do. It won't happen apart from God's sovereign work. We are Calvinists in that sense. We believe in God's sovereign work, from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. But Calvinism does not mean that we should not have contact with sinners. We should reach out to draw them in. Just like, she, just like fish. Drop the net to draw them in. How different these Pharisees were, dear ones, from the Lord Jesus himself. What Jesus said in a parable found in Matthew chapter 22, 
I'm just going to read a couple verses from that parable. Matthew chapter 22. The Lord Jesus said in this parable concerning a king who who threw a wedding party, a wedding reception for his son and invited certain respectable people and they chose not to come. And the more servants that this king sent, they beat the servants. They killed some of the servants. And finally, the king sent his army out and wiped them all out. And then he said, send my servants out now to a different group of people. Listen. Chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And another gospel, it says, compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. This is, dear ones, a foreshadowing each Lord's Day of that wedding banquet. And we ought to be going out into the highways and byways. People we work with and inviting the good and the bad to come. It was a glorious sight last Lord's Day to see visitors in our congregation. Some who were not believers. To hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we do not know what effect that will have in their lives in days, weeks, months, or years to come. But nevertheless, inviting those to come, that is what the Lord calls us to do. We must always, therefore, dear ones, be careful that Christian pharisaicalism of that sort of the Pharisees, the separatists in that sense, is not alive and well in us. That it's not alive alive and well in our family. That our families are willing to reach out to others. Now, I'm not one who says, I'm going to, nor do I believe it's biblical, for us to expose our children to every kind of degradation, every kind of sin, to play with, with, with children who are going to lead them into paths of wickedness. We don't compromise our children for the sake of evangelism. That is unbiblical. That's wrong. We don't learn the ways of the heathens. When we invite people over who have children, who may be in various ways not what we would like to see in children. They have a lot of room to grow. While we supervise the visit, we keep the, our children near us. We don't send them off, you know, uh, backyard or somewhere down into the basement if we aren't confident that they're going to be a good influence. We supervise their playing around so that we hear what's going on. We know what's going on. But nevertheless, we're inviting people over. We're letting them see what a Christian family looks like. I 
I ask you, dear ones, what good is light if it's under a bushel? If it's hidden, what benefit is light to a dark room? What good is salt as a preservative if it never comes in contact with the meat that it's supposed to preserve? There must be contact, beloved. So we've looked at Levi, we've looked at the Lord Jesus, or we've looked at the Pharisees. Now we look thirdly, finally, at the Lord Jesus himself. We read in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Dear ones, if you were a doctor, would the fact that you consciously chose to spend time with the sick mean that you liked sickness? That you liked disease? Or that you wanted in any way that you possibly could to promote disease and illness? Of course not. And likewise, Jesus, the heavenly physician, mixed with tax collectors and sinners, not because he approved of their sin, because I am sure we find in several situations where he very much disapproved and corrected and rebuked sin when it was done in his presence. It doesn't mean that he approves of their sin, but because this is the reason why he mixed as the heavenly physician with those who were sick, he wanted to heal them of their sin. He wanted to see them healed of their disease, those whom he had chosen. He knew which ones were his own, And he went into these various crowds, these various circumstances and situations because, just as in the case of Zacchaeus, another publican, he went to Jericho on a very specific mission. One man up there in a tree that he might be called and saved. And he went into a gathering like this because he was going to call out from that gathering those whom he had chosen. Here was Christianity, the Christianity that Jesus taught, is a rescue religion. Rescue nine, what is the rescue number? I can't even think of it now. Whatever the rescue number is, shows you how often I use the rescue number. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope that I never have to use it. That's right. Whatever that program is called, rescue something. Christianity is a rescue religion. We are like that force 
There is a signal and we go out by God's grace as His assistance. Assistance of the heavenly physician to bring healing to a very sick society that is terminally ill, perishing in their sins. He came to rescue from eternal death in hell all those who confess they are sick and in need of a doctor. You see, that's what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 5. They that are whole need not a physician. If you think that you're not sick, why would you need a doctor? The Pharisees didn't think that they were sick. Therefore, they didn't need a doctor. But people like Levi and like the tax collectors and prostitutes realize, hey, I'm sick. I am spiritually dead. I have no life with God and unless God has mercy upon me, hell is where I will spend eternity. Jesus came to redeem those who acknowledge that and turn to Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal salvation. We must exercise discretion and discernment For the Lord says that we are not to cast our pearls before swine. We must exercise discretion in being able to perceive who are those who have a hungering and thirsting for the truth. Those, whether they are professing Christians or whether they're uh, rank pagans, if they don't want the truth, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't put what's holy for them to trample into the ground. Take the precious gospel and the truths of God's word to those who are hungering and thirsting. Search for them like a a shepherd looking for lost sheep. Search for them in your various contacts. Leading questions that you might ask. They're hungering and thirsting and continue to probe and give them the truth that they need. In conclusion, you'll remember in 1969, the Apollo mission that went to the moon and landed for a few hours, conducted various experiments, obtained various uh, samples, and then they took off again. There for a few hours and took off again. They did not live on the moon, nor identify with it. It was a very quick contact and off they were again. But here is where, dear ones, the Jesus mission is quite different from the Apollo mission. Though he was eternally God, he, as it were, landed on the earth. And he identified himself with man by becoming a man. Living as a man. Suffering the taunts and ridicule. Suffering upon the cross the pain and heartache physically and spiritually and finally suffering as 
as the living God upon the cross the infinite wrath of a holy God for your sins and mine. He identified with you, dear ones. He is a sympathetic high priest. He knows from his own experience of going through far more than you will ever know what temptation is like. Jesus Christ was tempted. Believe me, He was tempted. So you see, when you are perfect, I mean, there are so many temptations we probably don't even see because of our blindness, because of our ignorance, because of our sin. We do not even see the temptation. Can you imagine the temptations that one who is perfect, who is sinless, saw? continuously temptation after temptation. He has identified. He is a sympathetic high priest, beloved. He knows what you go through. In his temptation, he suffered. And he knows what you go through because he is the omniscient God who sees very clearly. And he, dear ones, reached out to gather us in we who were dying, and He raised us from our sins or from our death, forgave us of our sins. This is the mission. This is the mission that the Lord Jesus Christ has called you and me to. In a unique sense, He's called me to this mission, but by way of application, dear ones, none of us can excuse ourselves from not testifying before the world of the greatness of God and what He has done in our life, defending the truth, giving to people the gospel. And so we ask, in conclusion, of who are you like? And you're reaching out to the lost, beloved. Are you like the Pharisees? Or are you like Levi? and the Lord Jesus. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Thou hast rescued us, Thou hast redeemed us, by the blood of Thine own dear Son. O God, we praise Thee that, that Thou hast provided a ransom payment. That our God, though we were in the concentration camp, prisoners of war of the enemy, Satan, Thou hast brought deliverance. Thou hast set us free. And now Thou hast made us Thine own children. Thou hast given to us a name, Thy name. O Father, we pray that we would, in gratitude for all of these blessings, that we would not hide that light, that we would not hide the salt, but that, Lord God, we would be faithful, that we would understand the difference between separating from idolatry separating ourselves from all entangling covenants that would compromise our covenant unto Thee, as opposed to separating ourselves from 
the wicked of this world, there is in some sense that, Father, we must have contact with sinners in order to bring them to a saving knowledge of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Send us forth this day with that message, with that burden. O Lord God, especially since we do not know how long of a time Thou will grant to us, cause us in our families to be especially faithful. O God, to live before our children as fathers and mothers, as those who have been transformed by the grace of Christ, to be faithful in leading our families in worship, in disciplining them and instructing them. O God, we pray that in every way we would see that this is where Thou dost send us first, to our family. O Lord, we pray that Thou would use us there and that our families as well would then become shining lights and examples of Thy marvelous grace. We ask, Father, that Thou would use these truths this day to build Thy church, to grow her, to bring in those who are lame, those who are blind, those who are deaf, that they may be healed by Thy marvelous power and grace. In Christ's name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.